Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards. From a Dying World, I am your host, David Agronoff, and I'm excited to interview, I think, for the fourth time, uh, Brian Evanson. Well, he was a guest on Dickheads when we did A Canicle for Leibowitz, which is not technically an interview. We were talking about the book, but... But Brian is somebody who, uh, before I was even doing a podcast, I had him on to talk about his book, um, his novel, Feral, when I was like kind of testing the waters of my ability to interview people. Uh, he goes back to this podcast before it was actually a podcast. <laughs> and uh, Brian, <laughs> welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Thank you. Good to be here. So we're going to talk today about your uh, short story collection, The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, which is, uh, you know, quite a cheery title. Right. Um, (laughs) And so we're going to get into some dark and uh, themes with it. But before we do that, for anyone who might not be familiar with Brian's work, Brian, let's let's give people a little introduction before I let you kind of go on that. I just want to say... Brian is absolutely one of my favorite writers. Um, he's, to, in my estimation, he is one of the best short story writers going today um, in the dark uh, fiction field, whether you're talking weird, bizarro, horror, sometimes science fiction, Brian touches on all of that. He, he also writes novels and one um, his novel Immobility is a favorite of mine. So we'll get into that stuff, but... Brian is also a teacher. So Brian, why don't you tell us about your, where you come from and just give us a brief introduction of, of you as a writer. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I teach right now at CalArts uh, in the creative, uh, in the critical studies program here. I taught at various other places, was at Brown University for a while, was sharing the program there in creative writing. And in terms of my own writing, I mean, I'm someone who, I feel like I've kind of been doing similar things across my career. But at the beginning, people called me innovative fiction. And now they see me as doing some kind of genre crossover. Um, And I think it's just that people have gotten, become a little more accepting of what genre fiction is or can do. Um, So I'm someone who straddles genre and literary fiction, someone who has a lot of interest in different genres. Right. And you're, as a writer, my introduction to you was actually in the physical world because the first time I ever heard of your work was you did a signing at Powell's when I lived in Portland for Last Days. I had, you were sharing the stage with uh, Jamia Jefferson, I believe, and That's I had right. gone, yeah. yeah, and I had gone to see her at the reading, and just as an excuse to go to Powell's, you know, <laughs> and um, and I remember my first kind of introduction to you was that. I saw you scoping out Thomas Ligotti books in the horror section before the reading. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, this guy's got good taste. I, I, I'm interested. And, um, but after the reading, I remember I, I went down to get to look at your extra books. They said, oh, well, he's not in horror. He's in literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know about you guys, but the guy I saw reading upstairs was reading some pretty horrific stuff. <laughs> yeah. Days, yeah. Which is a novel about a guy who infiltrates a mutilation cult, by the way. Right. And so that line between what is literature and what is considered dark fiction or horror fiction, you know, I, I, I respect the fact that you're able to kind of have a foot in both worlds, but I think what you're, what you're basically saying is, is that was never really intentional. You just wrote the stuff you wanted to write, correct? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, I, I've always had an interest in, in kind of dark areas and dark stuff. Um, and it kind of just naturally developed and, yeah. So, so I, I don't know. I mean, I have, I have a lot of horror writers who, who I identify with a lot of literary writers I identify with. And I just feel like it's those, those genre lines are a little bit artificial sometimes. Right. Well, and, and that's the thing too, is in, in speaking of Ligotti is just the like, and right. I don't know, it's just, maybe it was a coincidence, but I, I did like walk past you and Powell's and I did <laughs> notice you had a bunch of Ligotti books and, and, and Ligotti is one of those authors that kind of is, is respected in both circles, but yeah. hasn't, has had less, has gotten out of the, the genre ghetto a little bit less. But I think part, part of that is, is that also you being a part of the academic world and, yeah. and writing in, in that is probably is, is helped to keep you out of that ghetto that, that some writers get. Stuck oh, in. totally. I mean, I think that's, that's been something that, you know, cause I think it's partly, it's like I go and do readings at universities and, and then when I get introduced there, they're like, yeah, he's, he's creepy, but he's literary. And it's their way of like selling me to their colleagues. Um, and so, so, so yeah, I mean, I feel like I've been very lucky to and be we able say to say he's literary, but creepy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So, so I feel very lucky that I've been able to kind of, because I could see how it could happen that both the horror world and the literary world might hate someone. But in this case, they've both been very embracing and, and very positive about my work. Yeah. And, but you've done some, some, some things like Dead Space, uh, vi a Dead Space video game novel, yeah. an alien tie-in. Yeah. And, and so you've done some, and mostly under the name BK um, Evanson. Evanson, now, yeah. Yeah. And, and so those things are out there and you've had a lot of, you've had fun doing those things. And yeah. And, but one of the things that I thought of when, when I was looking at this book and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been a little bit since we've had an Evanson novel, right? Yeah. I know that you've, you've done really well and conquered that form really well. Last day's immobility is, is really good, but it seems like lately you've been putting some focus into short stories. Is that intentional or unintentional? Um, you know, I, I, I've always really thought of myself as more of a short story writer than a novelist. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy with those novels, those two novels in particular, you mentioned last day's and immobility. And also there's one called the open curtain. Those three I'm really proud of. Um, and, um, but I, but I really see like, you know, short stories are for, for me where the most exciting things are going on. And it, it may be partly that, you know, you can kind of jump into a world, do something with it and then jump out, go somewhere else. Um, right. so, so yeah, I, I, I do think that, but I've also, you know, I, I found myself thinking more and more about, you know, the collection of stories as being more than just like, oh, I got a bunch of stories. I'm going to throw them together and more mm -hmm. about, you know, how, how are these stories talking to each other? How are they kind of shaping things in a way that makes this more than just individual stories? So, so yeah. 
Yeah, and that's how personally I did my two short story collections where where um, they were themed, and if there there were plenty of stories that I had that just didn't fit the theme, and I just didn't, you know. Yeah, right. Exactly. They, they're just homeless, amorphous stories floating around. <laughs> For me, like that, having a theme. And that is a lesson I learned from Jeremy Robert Johnson, where, because very early on in, in my writing career, uh, Jeremy said to me, like, hey, short story collections generally don't sell, but if you have a theme to them that people can latch on to, like, oh, I want to read a bunch of stories with that kind of theme. Yeah. And now it's different for you because yeah. I believe your short, you are, you have such a great reputation for short stories that you know, it's not hard to sell a Brian Evanson collection because uh, there's a lot of us who are like, whatever the short stories are, I'm going to read them. I'm going to check them out. And that's definitely how I feel. Like if you're going to put out a short story collection, I'm there. Cool. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I know I will sell at least one copy. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's been funny. I, I probably, there, there has, a, people have always talked about how novels sell better than short story collections. And I think that, you know, generally the kind of default with that is true. Um, Coffee House, who's the press I publish with, has been incredibly good at um, just, they, they love the idea of me doing short story collections and, and they've always been game to do it. And so that's just given me the freedom to, to really kind of experiment with the form and, and just, just do it. Right. And then they have some of these like cool, if you're on YouTube, like these cool, like, um, basic uh like these the collect that the, the uh, covers work together in a way right. that the art is really neat how they how, how they do that but yeah yeah right my 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 non-binary child sarah did the covers and and they kind of design them so they kind of make a beast and kind of can be arranged in different ways and yeah oh that's really cool yeah um and and the thing about is that for me each of the collections the th the I've read four of your collections so how many do you okay. have like maybe I don't know maybe seven six I'm not sure exactly okay so I still have work <laughs> to do and I need yeah. to read the open curtain as well it's been when, when I get a new favorite author such as yourself a lot of times I don't want to read everything right away right. Yeah. I want to like kind of plan uh like a lot of times it's like oh i have a flight so i'm gonna read the next Evanson. Right? it's good to savor it yeah for sure. yeah um and i know yeah because i know you're the same way too because we talked about how you flew through like pkd for example and then yeah. then what do you do he's he's gone you know, you know? and right, thankfully right. We're, we're still gonna have more work of yours but mm. of the four collections that i've read i've read contagion a collapse of horses song for the unraveling of the world and now the glassy burning floor of hell each one kind of has standout stories. And so we'll, we'll go into depth of this new one. But for sure. example, like uh, A Collapse of Horses, it was uh, Any Corpse was the story that, that, that really, that I have a very distinct memory of. Like, that was a great story. And Songs from mm -hmm. the Ravening of the World, it was Dust, right? right? I think what's really cool is, is that a, a really good short story collection too, a lot of times you'll have stories that will stand out but it's the vibe that you're kind of getting from like, you know, when you, when you kind of dip into an author being able to give you a kaleidoscope of styles and different weird and things. And that's one of the things I do appreciate too, is that, that, that you experiment a lot with, with the form in short stories and yeah, which, which yeah. is hard to do in a novel because in a novel, you kind of have to have a straight line and you have to have, it has to feel like the same novel all the way through. Right. Right. 
Yeah, and you know, you talked about things being thematically connected, and, and that's partly what's going on in this, but it's also like just the idea that the stories are talking to one another, you mm -hmm. know, so that, that you have the, it's not that it's like super rigorous in terms of those them thematic connections, but but you still feel like you something in one story kind of leads you to another story or or makes you think about another story differently. And you know, hopefully it all kind of adds up over over time. Yeah, and 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 please. If I get something, if, if I'm way off on a story, def, definitely tell me because <laughs> I, I, when I sent the review, I, when I put the review out and of this book, my first thought was, I wonder how much Brian is laughing at me for way over reading into things <laughs> or mm. totally missing things. Um, and we'll get into all that because uh, there's a lot of, a lot of details because because yeah. I knew I was going to be speaking to you about this because we had talked about it before I read it. Um, right. Those are on YouTube. You can see like my copy is extremely highlighted and uh, dog-eared because I actually was like, okay, I have a chance to to pick Brian's brain about how he, <laughs> how he did this, which mm -hmm. is one of the um, absolute like joys of doing a podcast about this is like, you know, it's an excuse for me to talk to the people who wrote the books that I'm reading. Right, and right. For those, well, for those who are still alive, because I read a lot of out-of-date science fiction. But let's let's get into a little bit of some of those themes and some of the stories that are out there. Yeah. I just wanted to give an introduction to people and, and tell people like why they should read this before we start getting into the themes, because you can pause this podcast and come back because, you know, one of the missions of, that I kind of had for this podcast is, is that I, I always like the chance to talk to the authors of the books I'm reading because it gives me a chance to learn from you guys by picking your brains. I also want to put, pay it forward and for other people that have a chance to read this, this is a unique opportunity for those of us who can dive into a book like this and and you know not everyone's your cal uh tech students who are lucky enough to get to pick your brain quite often yeah, um, yeah. and i do want to say before we get into that one thing about that is that i know you you were i know like duncan barlow recently as a, who's a mutual friend of ours author yeah uh he recently taught a horror class right Right. And I know, I think this year you taught science fiction, right? This, this last year? Uh, no, no, I, I taught a horror class um, kind of when the pandemic was starting. I was in the middle of a horror class. Right. And so this would have been last year. And the, the oh, last I year- I gotten you guys uh, on together. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I did a fairy tale class this year is what I ended up doing, um, which was a little more you know, with, with all the stuff with the pandemic, it was a little more bearable to do fairy tales than to do like a straight out horror class. Um, but yeah, I, I was teaching a horror class when the pandemic struck and then suddenly I was having to figure out how to do it online. And, you know, I was gonna do, it was film and fiction and I had some some very odd things in terms of film. I was gonna do House, that Japanese movie, if you know that. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, which you can't, at the time you couldn't find on, um, you know, any kind of streaming format. So I had to like suddenly change everything, figure it out. <laughs> right. I'm wondering, and this is what I was getting to, is that a lot of these stories, a lot of these stories were published in various different magazines with different or different anthologies and things with different editors. And so they all had influences in different ways, but I'm, and we'll get to that. But before we uh -huh. get to that, I'm wondering, 
during the time that you wrote a lot of these stories, do you think the classes that you were teaching influenced any of the direction of, because this is a huge part of your life at the time that you're working on these things. So yeah, yeah I often wonder if, if what, what the main focus of what you're teaching, whether it's fairy tales, horror, or science fiction, how they influence uh, the, the running and going themes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it definitely has an influence. And, and you know, I try especially, whatever the class is, to teach books that, um, some books I know, but also some books I haven't read before as a way of kind of just, just learning new stuff and exposing myself to new stuff. Um, and in fact, when I did the fairy tale class, I was, I, I do a like a multi-week unit on Little Red Riding Hood. And that kind of, there, there's a lot of contemporary versions of that that kind of fade into horror um, and, and and, you know, in, in very interesting ways. And so, so yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think I, I mentioned, I think at the end of the book that um, Algernon Blackwood was a huge influence on this book. And certainly it was like teaching, I've taught um, the Willows over and over again for years. But last year, kind of when the pandemic had just started, a little before that, I, I decided to kind of systematically go through his work and just realize there's, there's all these amazing stories that he's written um, that I just, I hadn't read or didn't really have that much of an idea about. I knew the, the Wendigo and I knew um, the Willows and, and, and very little beyond that. And so that, that was a, a big, um, you know, had a huge impact on me, I think. Um, yeah. And, and so, so yeah, and every once in a while I'll come across a writer or, or a thinker who just really takes me in a new direction. You know, there was a moment when Robert Aikman, suddenly I was reading a lot of him and he really taught me to do things. Um, and then also just sometimes just seeing how students respond to things really changes the way I think about them as well. So I do see the teaching and the writing is connected. Yeah, I imagine sometimes like a, a, a student really connecting to a work that that you're you're giving to them or not connecting to it and seeing like, yeah. you know, how your your students. Um, yeah. Yeah. Kind of go in or in or out of that stuff is, is probably very impactful. Yeah. And I did teach. Yeah, I, now I'm realizing what you're saying before. I taught a speculative fiction graduate level workshop. And so it was about we read a lot of spec, speculative fiction of various kinds and then the students wrote it. And that was a big influence just in terms of making me think about that, you know, larger kind of ultra genre a little bit more. Well, yeah. And, and me specifically is, you know, the guy who does dickheads and, and has started to take the study of science fiction very seriously. I, I, I am very curious and 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 what you had them learning, but uh, mm. but <laughs> we, we can we can stay focused on this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I did talk to you a little bit about it around that time, but I. But if anyone wants to, like, we get into Brian's uh, feelings on speculative fiction a lot on uh, the two interviews or the two right. episodes of Dickheads specifically to the canticle for Leibowitz one which is which quickly became one of my favorite uh science fiction novels ever oh yeah yeah it's a good one yeah yeah so people should definitely check that out so there's a lot of different sources for the publication of the stories here and i know i kind of mentioned it already but i'm wondering what the because you, you did acknowledge in in the acknowledgments like thanking like all the different editors for for how they in impacted the stories i think that's you know, for me, uh, I, my two collections, a lot of it, I, I most of, I only had a few stories here and there published. They were developed in the theme for the collection. So they had mostly a single editor. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, having that many different editors kind of influence a book that seems so thematically connected, 
what what are some ways that different uh, editors who worked on some of these stories like had an impact on on some of the stories is do you have any good anecdotes or stories for because i think the way editors work with writers is underrated sometimes yeah i, I think it can be i mean it, it really varied from from editor to editor and story to story i mean some editors are very hands-off and and not very aggressive i mean but there were others like to breathe the air that story um which was published in mcsweeney's that the editor i worked with there um molly mcgee really had you know she she didn't have dramatic suggestions but she had a few suggestions in terms of moving and rearranging the story a little bit and and that was actually incredibly helpful just in terms of seeing oh this can slot in here or if this piece is closer to this piece then then it'll do something in terms of the way in which people kind of perceive it so so it would be sometimes things like that uh and and you know there are other some of the pieces were written for specific purposes Grower in the Snow was written for a, a, pro, a, 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 what was it? It was a book that was dedicated to Stefan Grabinski and his work. And mm-hmm. so I'm kind of responding to another writer there. Other things were written kind of for, for other purposes. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think editors can, if you, the thing with editors is you have to figure out, you know, often an editor will suggest something and it won't seem quite right. And, and then you have to kind of go back and think about, all right, what is it that, what's the the problem the editor's trying to address and is there a way of kind of sorting through that and coming at it in another way so sometimes the the you know the the, the suggestions of the editors would just lead me to to other things that the editor ultimately would be happy with and would make the the work better um for for both of us mm-hmm. yeah i've only had the experience of editing one anthology and being on the other end of that and it, it can be a really for two for a writer for the the editor it can be a really good mind meld sometimes yeah, you know yeah. where you, you get to really see what the author's thinking right exactly you know? and then and i like what you're saying about how you have to because i've been more on the end of being the writer and i do think sometimes a lot of times you the first time you read a suggestion you may be like what yeah <laughs> and then yeah. you have to like I, I like what you're saying you have to think like okay well what are they seeing what where right. do we meet in the middle right and, right and a lot of times stories really improve for it right exactly yeah. yeah yeah and that's the thing is is like figuring out you know how how can I make this work and and, and it, it you know there was a lot of back and forth with with to breathe the air for instance in a way that was really productive and that I really appreciated and and you know I think editors are often overworked enough that it's just you know it's great when they're they're willing to kind of take the time to you know think really seriously about a story yeah yeah totally and that's one of my favorite uh stories in the collection so oh cool you really got a vibe on that one but we'll come back to that one so all right so at this point uh we're gonna get into spoilers as far as like we're gonna talk about this the stories uh, assuming that you've read them so at, the, at this point if you have not read the glassy burning floor of hell, then pause and come back. Uh, I guarantee you it'll be worth it. I think we're going to get into some really fun stuff. So the first story is a story called Leg, which doesn't, this one was in, interesting because it is a very surrealist story. And what I, a surreal horror story, because 
this one's an example to me of not giving a shit about the rules like mm-hmm. you know because what i liked about leg is that if you pitched this concept if you said like this is what the story's about for most people for most like literalists <laughs> they're just going to be like what the uh, the prosthetic leg is a monster right so i'm really wondering like where where did this original concept come from to begin with and then we can talk a little bit about the execution because there's a few well, things in there. right right <laughs> where'd that come from i i don't know exactly where that came from first it just kind of came yeah and and it was the idea i mean i think it was partly this idea of thinking of kind of assembled beings or the idea of the cyborg as being something that potentially could could have more than one consciousness so that you have something that's part human and then part machine but maybe there's there's the human brain and the machine brain and and so i i, I think i kind of started with that and then it just kind of moved in this stranger and stranger direction until i had this idea of this this creature that seems to be a very good mimic um and also seems to you know be able to kind of change in these these really strange and unexpected ways and develops kind of a symbiotic relationship with this captain. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, so here's one thing too. It's funny because it's like a sleight of hand trick because, because I was so like kind of mesmerized by what the leg was and what it was doing. Yeah. And I don't know if this was intentional, but in a lot of the stories and one of the things about your writing style is you're not super detailed about place or mm-hmm. location. Some writers have to like, you know, Stephen King's an example of where everything is described to a very serious level. And yeah. what I realized when I finished the story was I wasn't even sure if she was captain of a sea vessel or a spaceship. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. And then because I was so focused on what the fuck is this like thing? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And was that intentional or was that just the effect that it had on me? Well, you were talking earlier about just the influence of classes. And I think that for me, that story feels very influenced by fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about the way in which it's told and stuff that, that puts you in this space where, where it just feels kind of like outside of time or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was somewhat intentional because of that. I see it as, as in space. So it's okay. kind of like what happens, it's like a, a, a tale or a fairy tale being told about something that happened in space, but maybe not being told in space. And, and so it's this kind of weird combination of um, a, a very traditional way of telling and, and a very far future. And those mm-hmm. two things coming together in some ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, this is something that happens with my work a lot. It's like, um, I'm very specific about what I'm making you pay attention to in a way that sometimes allows other details to remain kind of vague. Yeah. And it works. There's a, there's a point in the book where, and I'm not even sure what story it is where a character says, is this a place? And then somebody else says, well, it is, or it isn't, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's yeah. like, and, and to me, it was funny because when I read that line, I like highlighted it and I was like, I don't know where this fits into my review or my discussion of this book. It's just a thing that, even when we get into like the story that that takes place in the train it's yeah. like what kind of train is it yeah it doesn't matter because mm-hmm. the vibe and the mood is, is is the thing and i do like that part of your work where 
because I don't know if I could do that as a writer. I'm kind of somewhere in between. Like I, I like to to have like a firm ground of of the places that I'm yeah. at. Yeah, right? yeah. Sure. But I like it as a reader that I, I like that it's kind of, I like the sleight of hand of that is what I'm saying. It's, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think you have to, to figure out what you need to pin down and what you can kind of leave open. And so a lot of that for me is a lot of my revision process when I'm working on these stories is figuring out what I can take away. And so, so usually when I'm revising the stories get more compressed, they get a little bit tighter. And, and part of that is just figuring out how can I have the, the strongest effect possible with, you know, with, with, with fewer words and, and just figuring out how to do that. So, so that there's a story um, called the turnip princess, which is a fairy tale. Um, and it's this really strange little fairy tale that was just rediscovered just, just like a decade or something ago um, in a, in a German archive. And, and the thing that's great about it is, is it's like, it has just all this weirdness to it. And it's very specific about explaining some things and leaves all sorts of other things blank. And I think fairy tales in general do this where you, you can very quickly see what's important to the writer by what they explain and what they just don't think needs to be explained. And so, and I think that that's probably in terms of just the way in which I kind of operate, that's, that's probably a big influence. I specifically, in the way that I write is I try to not waste as any time as possible. I try to do everything really yeah. like, and, but what's funny is, is as a reader and with your work is I can luxuriate in some of your prose, you know, when you're, when you're doing things, but what's really interesting to me is, is that I feel I can see that whole thing where you're talking about how you pare down because yeah. one of the reasons why I think you're one of my favorite authors that toes the line between literary and genre is because I don't, I, I have always felt that you don't waste time or you don't dilly dally. And like a, a lot of literature, so-called yeah. literature writers do waste a lot of energy. Yeah, for sure. Loving their verbose language. And yeah. as much as I actually, you know, really do love your prose, I, I love the fact that you don't waste time on things, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I want to have a certain velocity to the work, but I also, I'm really careful about the prose. So you can enjoy it for the language, but also I, I want things to be moving. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not in, in love with navel gazing. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. Well, and you, you're, this is really funny to say, because I don't know how, how this is going to come off, but okay. you're a master of vagary. I, really appreciate that and and it comes in with whether it's like the places where i don't yeah. you never know what city you're in you never know what state it doesn't matter for mm -hmm. a brian evanson story but also it often doesn't matter what the characters are named um when you have characters named nameless citizen excuse me nameless person mm -hmm. or archivist or you know like a lot of stories just get descriptions and right. and i know in the past you've had a habit of repeating the same name just out of like you don't even want to think about names right mm -hmm. like a lot of times i don't remember what the name was but i remember you i remember the very first time i saw you speak yeah talking about last days it was a character name that you had used many times yeah the, the name klein i've used three or four times three or four different projects maybe more and there's variations of it i've used as well yeah yeah so, so on the, 
the the not naming characters like is there do you think that there's a risk there or you know yeah, are, yeah. <laughs> i mean i mean there can be a risk and of course there are characters that are named in the collection um when i do name them i tend to opt for strange names in some ways mm -hmm. um or unusual names um partly because it characterizes them kind of from the beginning but yeah i mean i i think if if you don't give uh, a name to a character, um, then you, you're identifying them by other means. Either you're leaving it very blank as a pronoun, or you're doing things like, like I, you know, you mentioned already, you call someone by their profession or, or, mm -hmm. you know, the archivist or, or things like that. And, and that ends up forefronting the importance of whatever it is they're, they're doing or whatever it is they're, they're, they're being called. But yeah, I mean, the risk is, you, you, you know, whether readers, can identify with them or feel like there's enough there to hold on to um, if they're not given a name. Right. So to breathe, um, breathe there, this, this was one of my favorite stories in the collection. And one cool. of the things that I really liked about it was there's a really, really organic and strange line between the location and the main character because the, the, people that inhabit this city and the i got this feeling that what you were trying to go for now i could be wrong about this but the feeling i got when i read the story was is that the line between the destroyed environment of this future and the existence of the people trying to survive on it has become almost broken down to the point where the very survival of both the people and the place are so intertwined Am I reading too much into this or? Uh, no, um, but I, I don't want to give too much away. I mean, I think one of the things about that story that I really like is that there, there is, there's a lot of room for interpretation in that, which right. so you talked about it as vagary, but I think of it as, as productive ambiguity. And so, so I think that that's one way into the, the story. And, and yeah, I think that's an interesting way to look at there. There's something about the relationships of the human uh, of, of the main characters to the environment where it doesn't seem like they quite belong anymore. And right. And this, they're, or they're, yeah. And this comes out in a passage on page 71 of, or at least the, I know it's an uncorrected proof. The one that I have, it, it'll probably be the same. Yeah. It'll probably be the same. Yeah. And then it says, and then he would tell me a story about a city that had come from another world a city that was in ways he could either not explain or which I could not understand sentient. So this is where it got really strange where I was thinking like, is this, I, I started to wonder if we were getting into almost surrealist dark city or, or matrix mm -hmm. territory where we were in a private cosmos mm -hmm. and those kinds of things. So, um, but that was, that was a moment that moment really hit me hard when I was reading it because it just like, it's one of those where you read a line that kind of just reorients your whole brain. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. And so congratulations. You re oh, reoriented well, my brain. There. I'm glad I could. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> there, there are these moments of, of where the characters are the disorientation moments where one character is trying to tell another character something and they don't quite understand it or don't make sense of it. And whatever the thing is being told is something that we kind of as readers have to figure out or derive. 
So, so, and I think this story in particular, it's about, you know, the situation that you're kind of figuring out as it goes along. And, and there's something mysterious about, you know, the characters that are called citizens as opposed to the other characters and how they are different or not different, which, you know, uh, which, which ultimately, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it makes sense for me to say, you know, this is what's going on here because right, I feel right. like it's more being able to occupy this space um, uh, of, of possibility in, in, in several different ways is what makes the story work. Yeah. And this is the one that I, in my brain saw like, Oh, this would have been a, this could have been a great novel or this could have been a great, uh, yeah. screenplay or, or like a, a, a really weird movie. Um, yeah. this is the, the one that I just, I saw expanding. So, and then the whole idea of the nameless citizen, like, um, yeah. The, the nameless person who yeah. uh, objects to the idea of being called a citizen, which is one of those funny, which was a very funny moment in the book uh, where he says, um, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop you right there. I might be nameless, but I'm not a citizen. I'm not of your community. Right. And that, and that just like opened up the story in a huge ways because I, I had to stop reading and think about, what this meant, although I was still laughing about, I'm going to stop you right there. Right, right. <laughs> so, well, so, yeah, I mean, and that's that's interesting because you, yeah. So so before we talk about that, I should say um, with To Breathe the Air, um, it was actually Claire Boyle who was the editor for that story. And I'm The Nameless Citizen that, was a different story. Right, like Nameless Citizen is a different story. But To Breathe yeah. the Air, I, I'm realizing that Molly McGee edited a different story thing for me for McSweeney. So I, I apologize for that mistake. But but yeah, so Nameless Citizen, that story, I think what happens is you you when you start to read that, you start to think of it in relationship to um, stuff going on um, with with To Breathe the Air, um, because mm -hmm. the notion of citizen has been so common with that story. And then Nameless Citizen, I think, also is meant to feed into immobility a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, another uh, novella I wrote called The Warren. So, so then that's part of what I, I you know, it's, it's not that there's a theme that runs through all the stories, but it's like the idea of a citizen and be, a belonging ends up kind of going from one story to the other. And the way in which that kind of bounces off themes of how do we fit in the world or how do we belong in the world or what's our relationship to this world we're destroying, all those things kind of start talking to each other after a while. Excellent. Well, and, and that's one of the, I love the idea because definitely I saw the connection to immobility. I, yeah. I, I saw that it kind of seems like it could be in the same world. And it yeah. seems like, it seems like what you're doing here with a lot of these stories, the theme, if I could, if there's anything that I, can see as a unifying theme with a lot of the stories and not all of them because like devil's hand and leg kind of mm -hmm. seem like surrealist horror stories kind of on their own but most of the stories have this theme of this post functioning yeah environmental apocalypse and so that's obviously a theme that's on your mind a lot lately which i think right. should be on everyone's mind lately especially yeah, people who have children or grandchildren you know yeah, thinking about sure. the, future, the future so that happened organically i'm assuming you didn't mean to it's just a theme that, that no yeah yeah it's pretty pretty organic i think it's just something that's on my mind and and hard for it not to be on someone on on your mind um and and something i think about more and more in fact a lot of the stories i've written since the stories in this book also kind of move in that direction there's a story at, at tor.com com called solution 
that kind of moves in a similar direction and picks up on things going on with some of the other stories. That's, uh, I, I like to think I'm in good company then because my first short story collection, Screens from a Dying World, was all uh, environmental, environmentally themed. Not nearly as good as the work here, but uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I, I think that they're, I think ecological horror, you know, yeah. obviously it's a thing that, that you and I have talked about before because I'm, yeah. I'm a massive John Bruner fan. Yeah. And John Bruner didn't just write about ecological themes once or twice. He had, he, yeah, he had his four main masterpieces were, yeah, were in the field of environmental horror. And if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, John Bruner's The Sheep Look Up, Stand on Zanzibar, The Jagged Orbit, and Shockwave Rider. I think I told you, I, I don't know that we've talked about it, but maybe we talked about it on Facebook that I just, um, read Stand on Zanzibar and The Sheep Look Up, reread um, uh, this year. And it was really enlightening to just think about that in terms of what's going on now. Yeah, totally. Well, I think um, Stand on Zanzibar is the best, Is in my opinion, it's the best science fiction novel of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, that's just my personal It's very opinion. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is, it's incredible. And we did, we did an episode on, and, and in fact, one of my favorite sci-fi podcasts just put out um, a stand on Zanzibar episode today, uh, who goes there. Oh, so, cool. but I definitely am interested at some point uh, <laughs> offline to talk about your thoughts on stand on Zanzibar. I definitely think, but I definitely see like a lot of the similar themes that are in that yeah. book yeah. here too, because I think that whole, you know, looking at environmental themes, it's almost impossible if you're writing speculative fiction these days not to get into them because... Yeah. And and everybody, and, and a lot of people, I mean, even like uh, Three Sigma of Palmer Eldridge, PKD, yeah. as far back as 64, he was talking, yeah. he was thinking about these themes too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. My dad in the late 70s, my dad's a physicist. Mm -hmm. But he was one of uh, a kind of small group of physicists who got involved in this field called ecological physics and where they try to use physics as a way of figuring out how ecology is changing and how the environment's changing. And so we spent a year in Hawaii um, when I was like 12 in 1978, I guess. And he was studying um, these trees called ohia trees that were dying and trying to figure out why it was going on. And so I think, you know, from a pretty young age, I just, I had this kind of consciousness of like, you know, we need to be paying attention. We need to be looking at things. And then I think there's this funny thing. I mean, I, I remember like I'm old enough to remember like the gas lines and stuff like that from, from the 70s and the sense that we were running out of resources and things are breaking down, we're destroying the world. And, and then it was like Reagan came along and like everyone just, just like pushed that all under the rug. And so um, it's, it's like something that's really occupied my mind for a long time, but I feel like for whatever reason now I just more and more of my work is moving in that ecological horror direction. So, yeah. Yeah. You're doing a great job with it. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> I think too, some of the things that I really liked were, I think it was curator was the yeah. first story where the, where the, where the cloud yeah. idea of the, the moving cloud was, was a great, um, execution of kind of the horror elements and creating tension but also one of the things i think this was the story where we first got like kind of the nameless character with the archivist yeah. i really like that this story touched on the themes of like trying to it's a very curator is a very short yeah. story 
But what I think it really does is it presents this idea that in the future, you know, we're going to be trying to look to these things to try and see what, 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 what kind of answers we can get out of looking in the past and what are people going to think about when they, when they look back mm -hmm. at, at, at the world as we right. know it, at least I, I really like that theme of curator. Oh, cool. No, um, I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. That story, I kind of wrote that in extrication, which is quite late in the class. Extrication. The, the, the extrication and um, the curator I wrote kind of at the same time and saw them as kind of being two different sides of the same coin, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And and so I see those stories as very much talking to each other. But yeah, I mean, I I, I think that that notion of, of legacy, which is something that curator comes up with, is something that, I mean, especially if you have have kids, uh, and they're thinking about kids and grandkids, it's hard not to think about you know what what is what is it we're leaving, um, what what are we doing? Um, would it be better for every other species on the Earth, if there were humans, if humans were just not around, all, all those things are hard not to think about. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, yeah, and you have several characters in this book straight up say, yeah. uh, and there's a, a part where a character says, well, don't you want the species to survive? And the character's like, not really. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, 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 I don't think so. And, <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, yeah, it's obviously it's it's we're, we're human, and it's hard not to want the humans to survive. But it's hard to, you know, we're 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 damaging a lot. So yeah, well, that balance is is really yeah. uh, well expressed there. So uh, one more thing about themes, and then we'll um, kind of wrap up on like on the putting together the uh, post production of the collection. Okay, transformation is always kind of a big theme with you, and in part of, part of it, I know you were one of the stories was for the David Cronenberg tribute um, anthology and transformation going back to last days, which, you know, is a novel very much about um, mutilation and self mutilation and those kinds of things. Yeah. Whether it's sometimes it's subtle things like the story, the devil's hand where it's a subtle kind of funny thing where the character wants to bet a thumb and he's like, I got two thumbs. I don't need to. And he's like, well, I, I can give you a third thumb. Right. Right. And, and there's yeah, I'll attach little, it anywhere you want. Yeah. Yeah. I'll attach it anywhere you want. But, um, and then there's little things like that, but then there's stories that are just huge with the way that the earth and, and people are transforming. So I wonder if you could t tell us a little bit about how you were thinking about transformation when it comes specifically to the stories in this collection. Yeah, I mean, I think if you want to think, is, is there a kind of theme that overarches the collection, then probably transformation would be the one. And so on the one hand, you have, I, I think that various stories are thinking about, you know, what does it mean to belong in different ways? And so you have, what does it mean to belong to a society? And do I want to belong to it? And all the citizen related stuff. Um, what does it mean to be belong to a world? And what are my responsibilities towards the world? And then also, I, I think just in terms of, 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 of bodies, it's like there's these transforming and changing bodies. And what does it mean to be me? What does it mean to belong to this, this, this kind of meat sack or whatever you want to call it? And, and how is it changing? How is it transforming? When, when do I stop being me? And so, so that notion of, of transformation and how one deals with it or approaches it or survives it, I think is something that runs through. And yeah, the, the, the story you mentioned, A Bad Patch, is, yeah, was written for a Cronenberg anthology. 
and was was written after that was super fun to write just because I went back and watched as much Cronenberg as I as I could and I'd forgotten a lot about his work um, and uh, and he's it, it's uh, so much of his work is about you know invasion and transformation and 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 you know the body being taken over in some ways and uh, it just just was really a pleasure to kind of go back into that stuff and think it through again in different ways. All right, so on the post production, so you you mentioned that a lot of the the stories are in conversation with each other, um, right? But they're not directly next to each other, and right. obviously, it's kind of up to us to figure out which ones are in conversation with each other, and right, right. So curator and the extraction extraction uh the extrication yeah extrication sorry um that's okay those are clearly together to breathe the air nameless citizen yeah very obviously i don't know in a weird way a a jostle i think goes Mm -hmm. in with with those ones too oh yeah yeah i think so too yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, and jostle i i thought was 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 really good as well i mean oh good if you're interested the ones i highlighted as my favorites Our leg curator to breathe the air, jostle, nameless citizen, daylight come, mm. Elo Havel, and the extrication were the ones mm. that were like where I actually flipped forward and took my highlighter and said, "Yep, that one was great. That one oh, was cool. really, cool, really cool. great." Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Elo, we haven't talked much about Elo Havel, but that's one of my favorites too, and it definitely fits into that environmental theme of, of some of the stories you've been discussing. Yeah. So, and why? Tell me. What, what about that story would made it one of your favorites? Cause I can tell you why it was one of mine afterwards too, but I want to hear you first. Um, well, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think for, for me, it was um, that I could kind of create, I felt like the, the kind of creature that's in there is something that is, is, was just really different than anything I'd done before. And so I think it was partly that, and then it's partly just this, you, you have a kind of narrator for that story that, that's understands the way the world is changing and also in, in some senses because he understands it has been pushed to a position where he's just no longer noticed or recognized or even you know seems to exist in some ways i like the placement of i i, I like the idea that that going to the forest to die that kind of that that mm-hmm. the importance of the role of the forest in this you know when when a lot of the other stories the world it's kind of dead. I got kind of got this picture in my mind of like, you're going to go die with the forest. You're going to go, you know, um, be a, be a part of it. Anyways, that, that's, that's, no, that's that's cool. Yeah. Kind of what hit me with that story. Um, Yeah. But that, yeah, that was definitely one of my favorites. So, so these themes, these stories are talking to each other in certain ways and, um, but you didn't, so what did you, how did you come to the order? Because I can tell you for my two short story collections, I was very insistent about the order, which is yeah. funny for a person who doesn't always read short story collections front to back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I went through it. Uh, so when I, what I always do when I'm putting a collection together is, is, is I just start putting stories on the ground in little stacks and then thinking about where they stand in relation to each other. Mm-hmm. And, and then eventually, you know, I'll, I'll take some out. There's there's stories in here that were written before the stories in the previous book. 
and their stories that were written kind of the, the uh, you know pretty pretty late in the process as well mm -hmm. um and it just depended so so i knew kind of very early on that leg would begin it and the glassy burning floor of hell would end it there there are two others that are kind of paired um in 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 some ways and in other ways not and then and then it was just a process of i knew i wanted to breathe the air somewhere in the middle partly because i felt like it was doing something different than i'd done before um and i i wanted to surround it in a way that would allow people to come into it in different ways so it, it made sense to me to, to kind of place it there and and then uh just just gradually uh, uh you know I, I started just putting things in and deciding where i'd go and eventually felt like i, I had the order that it would work yeah so when i was a young reader i would just take i would read the short the, the titles that interested me the most and it was yeah. putting putting together amazing punk stories my second collection where i put a lot of energy into the rhythm of which story comes after which that i yeah that i changed i was like from now on i'm I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm going to take seriously like where the authors decided to put these, yeah, stories because yeah. I yeah, thought I, so much. Yeah, I mean, I think if you read this collection in order, it'll it'll. I think you'll you'll you know whether you read it in order or not, you'll still find some satisfaction in it. But if you read it in order, hopefully the stories are kind of adding up in a different way. Yeah. Now, if I was going to reread them, I might read them in a different order because now that sure. I know certain, I, I knowing that certain stories are kind of meant to kind of go together, I, it makes me want to read them back to back. Yeah. You know, to yeah. a degree. To breathe the air is a story that I, I feel like I will be reading again to kind of really digest yeah. it the same way that I read any corpse uh, from <laughs> Collapse of Horses multiple times and yeah. And, uh, and cool. dust from your from your last collection. Uh, when when a short story really gets in under my skin like that. Um, no, and that's it, great. I mean, I, I love that. Yeah, if there's stories that people like, I just love that they go back to them. And and for the record, I'm working on a top ten horror short stories panel in the next couple months, mm -hmm. and uh, any corpse is in my top ten. Oh, cool! So I'm glad. It, I'm it glad. Will, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm hoping to have. Uh, uh, I know for a fact I want Laird Barron on that episode. I want him. Yeah. I want to hear his top ten for sure. Oh yeah, but, for sure. Yeah. But anyways, I I just I know that any corpse is going to be on there. It's it's. Um, yeah. Laird would definitely be in my top ten. Some of his work. So yeah. Yeah. You were talking about stories and reading them in order or not. And Robert Shearman published a book last year called "We All Hear Stories in the Dark," which mm -hmm. is a three-volume book of stories that you can either read in order or he gives you like different possibilities for going through it. He'll say, if you want to read this kind of story, go to this one. And, and so there's, there's, you can jump through it in different ways. And I just love that as a kind of innovative way of handling the story collection. Oh, that is really cool. All right. So, uh, Brian, uh, you've been, uh, really awesome to give us the time to talk about this book. Um, is there anything that you feel like I've been, I've missed that something that in the writing of this particular collection, something you've done th with one of the stories in here that you've never done before, that you're really excited about your ability to experiment with the, these particular stories. No, I mean, I think you've, you've touched on what I see as kind of the larger themes. And I think a lot of the you know, the details are, are things that you kind of have to read on the page to kind of sort out. I mean, I'm definitely moving in uh, a direction of 
thinking about what it means to be human or not human, which I think is something that surfaces in some of these stories and that the stories that I've written since seem more and more in that direction, but that, that'd be the only thing I'd say. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and the, the title, the glassy burning floor of hell, why did you do, uh, land on that as, as the title with all the different stories? It, it's, I don't know from, from very early <laughs> on, title. I just, I, I like the title. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that the title story represents the book as a whole. I, I think there's, there's connections obviously to lots of different things in the book, but I, I feel like just, it was such a good title. I couldn't pass it up. I ran across that line. It's taken from Margaret, Marguerite Young, uh, a novel. She wrote massive novel, like 1700 pages called Miss Macintosh, my Gar darling. And it's just, uh, you know, almost, it doesn't mean anything in the, in the novel, but she said that and I was like, Oh, I need that. <laughs> so stole it from that. That's great. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing title because it's in uh, you know in this day and age a title is everything. Like somebody's scrolling <laughs> on the computer looking for yeah. books and like, oh, what's that? Um, yeah, 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 for sure. Right. But my, my 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 son who's eight is very upset with me about that title because he doesn't think I should use the word hell. <laughs> well, yeah. he hasn't read the book yet. So. No, no, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, coming off the heels of song, songs for uh, the unraveling of the world, which, uh, uh -huh. you know, <laughs> you're going, uh, you're going to really have to think deep for the next to go darker with the next one. I, I know. I, yeah, I don't know what the next one would be called yet. So, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it'll have to just be puppies and unicorns next. That's time. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Brian, it was um, great to talk to you again. Um, Likewise, really, David. Yeah, this was um, a really excellent collection. Um, uh, any novels down, down the way? Or are we going to get... Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm working on... Um, I'm about 120 pages into a, a sequel to Last Days called Phantom Limb. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> we'll, awesome. we'll see. It's been slow going because the pandemic... And, and some other things I've been doing, but but I'll, I hope to get there. Oh, it's a huge fan of Last Days. That is that is a awesome tease. So. Yeah, good, 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 awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, anything you want to direct people to, or just uh, just buy the book? No, I mean you know I, I uh, buy the book. I hope if you buy it, you enjoy it. And uh, uh, and in any case, yeah, thanks so much. All right, thanks for joining us. And Brian, I'm sure I'll. Uh, I'll be thinking of ways to get you back on dickheads again, too, because we uh, um, you're, you've been a favorite guest. Um, uh, I'm, I'm always happy to come back. Yeah. All right. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Bye.